Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week, I decided to do something a little different. Our guest this week is Major Christopher Fowler. That's right, he's my brother. My youngest brother, to be exact. I apologize in advance if we sound too much alike, but hopefully you can tell the difference between us. Now, you might be wondering what an Army Major knows about chiropractic. It might surprise you to know that I took him to his first Gonstead seminar one week after he graduated from high school. He chose to go another way in life, but he has a lot he can teach us about leadership, self-discipline, and earning respect. So without any further ado, Major Christopher Fowler. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I know. It's my pleasure to be here. I originally had an idea where I thought I kind of wanted to go with this, but then as I thought about it more, I thought, well, I don't really want to lead you too much. So I actually just wanted to ask a question first that maybe will set the tone for this. But here's what I was thinking. So as you've moved up through the ranks and attained higher rankings, and then you look back behind you at the people coming behind you, I'm sure there are people back there who desire to be where you are one day. And as you look at those people, you probably can think, you can probably look at them and think to yourself, you don't have a chance. You're going to make it. You're going to struggle, but you might make it. And when you look at that and you kind of form those thoughts, what, what do you think is the number one thing that kind of draws the difference between who's going to make it and who probably won't make it? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, you're exactly right to, to start off. So I, it's at this point where I'm at now, I can very easily have a younger officer come in and start talking with me, or maybe I've given them a, a task to, to go accomplish and, and, uh, depending on on their reaction or their conversations i can usually tell right away whether they're uh whether they're going to be good or whether they're really going to struggle in their career um i think a lot of it uh really a lot of it comes down to competence uh that that's that's basic um how how well do you know and understand your job um but i think a lot of it goes beyond that because i i've known a lot of a lot of people in my field who weren't the smartest, but they were really hardworking. They were they were dedicated to uh, whether it was dedicated to to the unit them, or an individual, or just dedicated to <laughs> to making money. Like I don't want to lose my job, so I need to figure out how to make this work. Even though I'm not smart and I can't figure this out, I'm going to make it work. Um, really, the ones that that struggle are the ones who are very self-absorbed. They, they don't really have a, a broader view of the world. Um, in the military, the, most, most officers that come through tend to go through ROTC, which is right out of high school. You go into, and the Army's going to pay for you to go to college, uh, and then you go right from college, and now you're expected to lead a group of, of 30 people. Uh, so you're right into middle management right out of college. Uh, and a lot of a lot of these individuals have never seen what it's like to be uh, in, in a business where if, if you fail and you struggle, the business is going to lose money and you're going to get fired. In the Army, if you fail and you struggle, you're going to get fired, but not fired from the Army. You're just going to get put into a, into a corner uh, where you can't hurt anybody, but you're still going to get paid. You're going to get paid the exact same as you did before. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a different perspective in my line of work where it's like, I screwed up. Oh, well, I'm still getting paid. You know, the army's going to pay me until I get to that point where I can get out. And then I'm going to, then I'll worry about going and finding a job. Um, to me, the, the ones who excel are the ones who recognize that they could get out of the military and make a very, very good living. They They can make a lot of money getting out. Um, but they choose to stay in anyway, uh, recognizing that that they're they're trying to find a, a broader purpose for their lives, and really just more trying to accomplish something for themselves ultimately. Yeah, and on that kind of on that leadership front, I remember a story that you related from I, th- I think it was your first duty station in South Korea when um, you you had these different you had this group under you, and your group was like the best group of the best. And then they have the bad news bears, really bad group. And they decided to give you the bad group, but you had to keep the good group. So you got to have the best team and the worst team at the same time. 
and you had to try to bring the bad team up to be like the good team. And I remember you telling me, you said, it didn't surprise me that my problem was leadership. What surprised me was it wasn't my officer leadership. It was my enlisted men leadership. And then we talked about the fact that basically the way they became leaders was they got there first. And that that's not really a good way to become a leader by simply being the guy who got there first. Yeah. So as you were going through that process, that perspective of seeing both these groups, what kind of like what kind of things did you do to get that bad group to kind of come up and meet the good group? Yeah, well, that that's a uh, another really good question. And, and before I jump into that answering that question, I, I will say there, there's a, a funny I get call it an anecdote, I guess, uh, in in the military where like. You, you know you're doing well when you get to do all the work. If <laughs> if you find yourself with a lot of things to do, it's because you, you've you've excelled, and now everyone's going to trust you with more and more and more. And the guys who aren't doing anything and leaving early, <laughs> we know where they're going. <laughs> so, so I knew when when I was getting more work piled on me, I was like, okay, obviously I'm, I'm I must be doing something right. Um, but but I I honestly had forgotten about that that situation and. Uh, so now I'm trying to recollect <laughs> what happened. Uh, if if I do remember correctly, though, it was um, the the leader that I took over for. So so essentially the, the bad news bears, if you will, what you <laughs> call them. Uh, if, if there isn't a strong leadership at at the front setting an example, then then anyone new coming to the unit is going to they're going to follow that poor example. And that's going to then become their existence in, in the military. Um, so, for instance, if, if I'm a, an 18-year-old impressionable private coming right out of, out of basic training, and I'm going to show up to Korea, so when I'm all, all of a sudden I'm in a different country, and my first exposure to the military is, is this leader who doesn't know my name, doesn't care about me, uh, goes off and, on, and leaves in the middle of the afternoon to go get drunk, uh, whatever, right? There, there's many, many different examples of, of what I've seen. Uh, I'm going to start to believe that that's normal. I'm going to start to think that that's what the military is. That's, that's how I should be. So now me, as an individual, with this impression of, of what I'm seeing, now I'm going to start increasing in rank and then I'm going to be the one in charge and I'm going to carry out that exact same existence where now I'm teaching other people that these bad habits are just, it's just how it is. It's the way it always was, the way it always will be. And, and it's that kind of mentality that, that gets us in that chain of, of, uh, I guess, poor decisions, a chain of poor decisions where, uh, and, and it's really come to light in the news recently uh, with a lot of sexual assault allegations, which has totally uh, transformed our our military and, and how we approach that now. Um, just the way that we treat uh, uh, homosexuality and transsexualism in in the military is all of that has changed because of a a cycle that just got worse and worse and worse, like a spiral going down. Because one bad leader teaches another person, they become the leader. They teach another bad person, and it's just progressively gets worse and worse. The only way to fix that is to instill strong leaders who will take that downward spiral. First, you have to stop the downward spiral, and then you can start working away to get back up to the top. Uh, so I, I think uh, one of the ways that, that I, I tried to do that was engaging with individuals. Uh, and I've, I've seen a lot of leaders who like to get in front of a formation. So if I'm standing in front of a formation, I've got may, maybe 30 to 150 people that I'm standing in front of. And I'm they're, they're all taking orders from me. I'm going to tell them to either go to attention, parade rest, whatever. Um, but automatically, I'm at the front of the formation. I'm, I'm the face of that organization, right? A lot of leaders like to leave it right there, where I'm speaking, you listen, and then you leave and you go. If you're not engaging with each one of those people individually, once they leave that formation, they don't care what you just said. They're not going to follow your example just because you said something, right? If I'm engaging with you on a one-to-one -one level and we are now uh, understanding each other, we have a mutual respect, right? I'm, I'm, I respect you because you're a person and you add value to my team, right? I hope that you respect me uh, as a person. I don't, ultimately, I, I care if you respect me as a leader, but I, I more value 
I more value your, you respect me as another person and treat me like like a like a decent human being, right? Mm-hmm. So that way we can engage on a on a personal level, and maybe I can inspire you to go do your job, and maybe in in the midst of that you're going to inspire me. Oh, that reminds me, I need to go do this, or I I failed you because you're you're talking to me and you're expressing your needs that I have not met. Uh, so that that was really one of the big things that that I found to be a a huge change as a young officer that I didn't even know what I was doing at the time. I was still trying to figure out the army because I was brand new to the military, right? I had a, I had a, a short experience as a, in the civilian sector, but uh, I was still less fewer than uh, three, four years in the military. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, so I think a lot of it had to do with, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to tell you, Hey, go do this. And then I'm wrong. So, I mean, there, there's a little bit of self, self-preservation in there as well. But at the same time, I found that not, not only is it preserving me, but it's preserving the, the other person as well. Cause now all of a sudden uh, maybe I'm going to find out that, that they're depressed because they're in another country. They've never been away from their families before. And all of a sudden they find themselves on the other side of the world. Maybe they have a little bit of homesickness. Maybe I can engage with you as a person and find out that you're sad. Hey, you need to talk. Do you need to go talk to someone else? Cause you don't want to talk to me. That's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, so there's there's a lot of value in in building trust at the individual level as opposed to just assuming that because I'm the leader, you're going to trust me because you have to. Otherwise, I'm going to fire you because blah, whatever. You know what I mean? So um, so that, that was a lot of how I approached that situation. Well, I see a lot of tr- um, parallels there with what we have to do between the way we might interact with our staff who we can fire. And our patients, who are a lot harder to fire. Yeah. <laughs> same thing. If you're trying to lead patients, it's the same thing. I can't just tell you to do something. Then we both leave the room, and I just expect you to go do it. There has to be more of an engagement than that to actually to actually lead people where you want them to go. And that a lot of times we don't lead; we just bark commands and move on about our day. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and that that's almost like the relationship. So what you're talking about with your patients is almost like the relationship that I have with my boss. Because my boss is not a logistician, whereas I am a logistician. I'm his only logistician that's really going to advise him. So if if he doesn't trust me, if I haven't built that relationship with him to say, hey, hey, sir, here here's what we need to do. Here's how we focus on on ensuring that, that we are are prepared to, to, for this operation. If he doesn't trust me, then you're exactly right. I'm going to say, hey, this is what we should do. And then he's going to be like, yeah, OK, whatever, Chris, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do what I want. It's just the same thing with your patients. If if you if you don't have that trust established and, and you're trying to say, hey, this is what you should be doing with your life to make your life better, and they're just like, sorry, Dave, I'm I'm out of here, then <laughs> then that that's gonna be a, a that's gonna be an uphill battle because once you once you fail to establish that trust and yet you're still advising, it's really hard. It's almost like each time you advise and they their trust is gonna get a little bit less and less. It's like you really have to establish that trust first before you start advising. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because I think a lot of times we think of somehow, and I think doctors set this up a long time ago, that somehow we're the boss and we tell you, the patient, what to do. But the reality is they are actually the boss. They're just an ignorant boss, kind of like, I mean, it's yeah. kind of like yours. He's ignorant <laughs> logistics. So yeah. the kind of thing when you've got an ignorant boss, but you need to please your boss, you got to get them to trust you so they'll take your advisement when you tell them what they need to do to actually be where they want to be. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because I, I think ignorant is one of the most overlooked words in the dictionary because everyone associates that with being dumb or stupid, which it's not. It's not. It just means you have not learned yet, right? So yeah. I think ignorant is, is a perfect way, especially like me as a, as a uh, patient coming to you. I have not learned what my spine is supposed to be doing, right? So if you don't... Uh, if you don't establish that trust first and tell me that you know what you're talking about, then when you tell me I should go do something like slam my body against the wall, I'm going to be like, yeah, okay. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so not saying that you would ever advise that. Cause that would, <laughs> I don't think that that's Gonstead. If, if I remember correctly, that's not part of the, the technique. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, so I was just thinking that I think if you ask, if you were to ask your boss, he probably would admit that he's ignorant of logistics and would probably then tell you that he intends to stay that way, which is what a lot of our patients do too. They're like, Absolutely. That's why I have you is so I can stay ignorant. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I don't intend on going to school for three years. So that's, that's why I'm coming to you or yeah. however. Yeah. Yeah. And your boss, I don't know what his job is, but I'm sure it's much more far reaching and logistics is just one little piece of it. A piece he doesn't really know, but needs good advisement so that it fits into the whole, but he needs to know the whole. Oh, I, I, that that's a very, very accurate statement. So my, my boss is a pilot, right? So he's, a, he's an aviator. He flies helicopters. He doesn't care about logistics. He doesn't want to have to care about logistics, but he, he understands that if, if he doesn't have the logistics that he needs, then he's not going to be able to fly that helicopter. So right. as it's, it's, yeah, absolutely true in that, in that parallel. And you don't want to be in mid flight to suddenly realize you don't have what you need to fly a helicopter. I, exactly. Oh, wait, I don't have fuel. Uh, oops. <laughs> that did turn out well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly <laughs> enough, when helicopters don't have fuel, they fall. Do it again. Weird. It's, it's surprising they fly as it is sometimes. Right. <laughs> um, so then I was kind of thinking, so then if we go back, um, where I originally wanted to go with this was I was kind of thinking about the area of self-discipline and what self-discipline takes to move people forward and how self-discipline is something that's, that they attempt to instill in the army, um, even in boot camp. Some of the things that seem very mundane, like you need to make your bed, and you need, is really just there to teach you to discipline yourself and to care about the small things. And they recognize that having that self-discipline makes people become better soldiers or whatever they need to be. And a lot of people do join the military just because that training alone will carry on through life, whatever they do. Um, people with military experience are often more desirable for hiring because of the fact that they have more self-discipline because they were taught, they were officially taught it. Um, when you look back, if you think about growing up, I'm kind of curious, what, what was your view, attitude, relationship with um, self-discipline? And how did you... How, what do you think? I guess as a general rule, do you think self-discipline was something that was in our family to some degree, or was it not? Or how did you? What role did that play before you hit the military? Like, did it make you desire self-discipline, or do you not even recognize it existed? Yeah. Um, <laughs> looking back on it, I don't think I had any self-discipline. Uh, well, let me let me rephrase. I had some self-discipline. Um, so like every once in a while, I, after, after I graduated high school, I would go for a run, even though I hated running, I would, I would make it a thing where I would, I would go out and I would, I would run. I, I honestly don't know what drove me to do that. It certainly wasn't any sorts of, any sort of discipline. And yet I still had some semblance of discipline in that regimen, in that, in that routine. Um, I, ironically, what, led me to join the military was <laughs> I decided that I needed someone to tell me what to do. Right. So I, I realized, I recognized that I, I had such little self-discipline that I needed to have discipline enforced on me, which I, which I say is ironic, I, I think, or, or maybe a little backwards is a better way to put it. Cause most people don't want to join the military because they don't want people telling them what to do. Right. <laughs> so uh, in that regard, uh, I, I think I, I, I didn't really recognize it as discipline at the time. I just felt like uh, I operate better when you tell me what to do. I'll go do it. I have mission accomplished. I'm done. Right. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of what we do in the military is to build that in someone's brain. I'm going to tell you what to do. You go do it. Mission accomplished. Right. Whereas I joined because I, I, I realized that I needed someone to tell me. So, uh, it's at some point there must have been some sort of discipline built in me, right? <laughs> probably through football, probably through, uh, uh, I think college plays a lot. Cause that, that's, that's a huge part of the developmental stage of, of an individual. All of a sudden you're on your own. You have to make that choice. Do I wake up at a certain time? Do I go to class? Do I come home? Do I do my homework? Do I write that paper? Uh, do I go to the library? Whatever mm -hmm. that, that to me built, it builds some sort of, of routine that, that I guess turns into discipline at some point. Uh, and I just found that th that worked better for me. You tell me what to do, I'll go do it. And then we're all happy. Right. Um, I, again, I, th I think a lot of people don't want to join the military because if they think of discipline as a negative thing where you're either going to uh, punish me for not doing the right thing, or you're going to, you're going to strip something away from me. Like you're going to, strip away my freedom of speech. Like I don't, I don't have freedom of speech. Right? <laughs> that's, yeah. it's, it's very weird as an American to say, Hey, you're another American. 
you have freedom of speech. I don't. I don't have that luxury, right? So again, it's been stripped away from me. But I don't see that as a as a, a negative in that regard. Uh, I see discipline really as um, I, I like to revert back to what our friend Drew always used to say, and he I'm sure he picked it up from someone else. You can either pay now and play later, or play now and pay later. And a lot of people choose to play now and pay later, maybe hoping that that they'll die before they actually have to pay. I, I don't know. Um, but it, like you see it with, with finances, you see it with, uh, eating habits, you see it with, um, I, I've already said it, but I think money is a huge one. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to go take a vacation today. Uh, I don't, don't know if I'll be able to put food on my table next month, but I'm still going to go because I need this. It's my best life. Yeah. Right. And I, I think <laughs> that, that, that phrase, my best life or, I'm doing what's right for me right now. I, I think a, lo- a lot of people use that as a justification as opposed to a motivation yeah. where it very much should be a motivation. If you're going to live your best life, then you should have the patience, the dedication, the determination, the perseverance, and ultimately the discipline to put yourself in a position to achieve those goals. Uh, so when I when I see discipline, when I think of now, when I think of self-discipline, I'm thinking, okay, what what am I willing to put off now so that way I can have what I want and more later on down the road? Yeah, that quote actually comes from John Maxwell, and he says you can pay now and play later or play now and pay later, but if you choose to play now and pay later, you're going to pay with interest. Mm. And to me, that's the profound part at the end is realizing oh, yeah. it's not an equal, equal thing. That if you actually choose that you're going to play first and, and pay later, and do what needs to be done later. It's going to be the price will be steeper. It'll be more yeah. expensive. And um, yeah, I'm thinking about all these different things because how this relates to us. So, like when you're in school, school kind of does like boot camp a little bit, where it forces you to be disciplined because you got a class you got to go to, you got to be there, you got to do this stuff. And people look forward to graduation, kind of like they look forward to graduating boot camp, thinking once I'm out of here, I'll be free. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> and they have no idea that actually what happens is you just don't have it so obvious. But if you do screw up, the penalty is higher. So oh, yeah. you're really free. Um, you're at, it's actually just a warm-up lesson. So same thing. We get out of school and we think, oh, I'm finally free. But then you get in an office and you have all these patients who are paying you and expect you to do what you were paid for. And the pressure doesn't lighten up. It just becomes more and more intense through all of that. And so the only way to stay true to it and be able to meet that demand is to discipline yourself. So these are the things I have to do. But I think at the same time, I never really talked about this before and I hadn't really thought about it until just now. Another thing that coincides with the military is that the way to the way to do that and the way the military does it is that everything is done by a system. You have a system for everything and you follow the system. And if the system doesn't work, you don't scrap the system, you correct the system. Well, maybe not in the military. <laughs> but you correct the system and then you uh, and then you have a better product and that that's how it should be gone. Not I tried the system, it didn't work. So I've scrapped all systems and I'm now just winging it as I go. Yeah. No, no, in in the military, we'll definitely throw billions of dollars at a broken system in hopes that it'll just fix itself. So, uh, <laughs> That's a good philosophy. Much much different in the in the uh, in the private sector, I'll say. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So we kind of got through through uh, through that process, and then you get into um, you start in the military, start doing these things. So um, you you ended up. I forget actually before you, you didn't weren't always, you started doing logistics when you went to captain school. What did you do before logistics? So, yeah, so army logistics is, is actually made up of uh, three branches. So ordnance, which is what I was, I, I was an ordnance officer. So as an ordnance officer, we worry about maintenance uh, and ammunition, two very vastly different things. And yet they, they grouped both of those under one branch. Uh, so logistics is ordnance, transportation, and quartermaster, which is all your supply and uh, and issuing out uh, different uh, equipment and supplies. Uh, so you put all those three things together, and you and you have logistics uh, in the military. And then logistics is part of a bigger whole that we call sustainment, uh, which sustainment is made up of of personnel. Uh, so your HR essentially, uh, your medical, so all the doctors, uh, and then logisticians. Uh, but then it, all, all the little different uh, random, so like legal, uh, so the lawyers in, in the military fall under sustainment, uh, the financiers, 
all the money guys, the the band, so that everyone playing an instrument is in sustainment. So well, we're a very wide ranging community in terms of sustainment. Uh, and I'm, I'm a part of that as a logistician, uh, which is the the largest part of the sustainment branch. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of how we could kind of relate this back to the chiropractic side and, and the business side. But let's say we've got somebody who um, grew up in a family where self-discipline wasn't a big thing. By some miracle, they managed to get themselves into school, through school, do their whole thing. They get done. They feel the need to go start their own office. Not having self-discipline, whether they recognize it or not, is probably going to hold them back from moving forward. Using kind of like a military knowledge of what it takes to teach self-discipline to virtually anyone, no matter where they come from, what would be some good first steps to try to start getting somebody in the mindset they need um, to start thinking about these details and to start thinking logistically, but also just big picture wise, how do I self-discipline myself to know what needs to be done and then to actually get off my butt and do it? No, absolutely. And there's, I, I hate to break it to anyone. There's no magic pill that you can just be like, all of a sudden you are self-disciplined, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but, but to your point, I, I think there's, there are some very small things that we can that we can make in, in our daily choices. So uh, if if I'm hungry for lunch, do I go out and get a burger or do I have a salad? Right. I really want a burger. I really don't want a salad. So for me to choose a salad, knowing that's the healthier option, all of a sudden I'm starting to build a habit. I'm starting to build that discipline to understand that if I don't want to be fat in the next 10 years, which too, too late, right? Because 40 sucks. But uh, <laughs> but uh, if I don't want to be fat in the next 10 years, I need to make the right life decisions now where I'm eating salad. I'm going to go work out when I'm done uh, with my work, even though I really don't want to. Uh, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to do some push-ups, whatever it may be. If you can make those smaller choices uh, in your own personal daily activities, I feel like that's going to set you on on a on that pathway where when you have to make bigger decisions, especially when you start talking about money, uh, it's going to help you make those wiser decisions. Understanding that that in order for me to attain my my long term goal, I need to establish my short term goals, and then I need to make those right life decisions in between, so that way all of those can lead up to that one major goal that I want to accomplish. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Turning it into a little bite-sized, bite-sized chunks. It's like there may not be an ultimate pot at the end of the rainbow gold pot thing that we're actually going for, but there's stepping stones along the way. And we're just choosing stepping stones that are attainable, but challenge us to get to those phases. Yeah. So like for, for us, physical training at, at, at 630 every morning, we're supposed to be out there doing some sort of workout, right? Nobody wants to be out there at 630 working out. And ultimately, it, it, it accomplishes multiple things, right? It keeps us in shape, which is part of our job. We have to, we have to stay in shape. Um, it, it, it gets us out there as a team. So it's team building. We're doing it as a group. Uh, and then ultimately, it's building that discipline because nobody wants to be out there, especially when it's, <laughs> when it's below freezing and you're trying to wear shorts to go for a run. It, it's miserable, right? But that discipline to still get up and do it, knowing that, that really I have to do this, right? And it's that for us, it's the accountability, that accountability piece of knowing if I don't do this, this is going to happen, right? I think it's a lot harder on the private sector because if I don't do this, who's holding me accountable, mm -hmm. right? Are my patients holding me accountable? Uh, maybe if it's something, if it's something like that, that that's going to get me in trouble, maybe. Uh, but if, if I'm the boss, and there's no one holding me accountable, am I still going to make this decision? Uh, for, for me, like coming up in, in rank, I still have to, I still have to recognize that myself and, and recognize, well, there's no one really looking out for me in this area. Do I do the right thing or do I, do I slack off and, and just do whatever I want to do? Right. So in, in that regard, it takes integrity. Uh, and again, there's no magic pill to, 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 <laughs> to have integrity. Uh, it's one of those things where you have to make active and deliberate decisions in your life. Am I going to do the right thing, even though no one's really watching? Yeah, and I've talked about that on the podcast a little bit before, is the, the issue of how we build trust with people, and it's competence, but it's also character. 
Oh, absolutely. Ethics are important. And yet it's kind of funny how we live in a society where in so many areas, people feel like ethics aren't important or they could just be ignored. And again, to relate that back, you look at politicians and it doesn't matter which side of the aisle they're on. Politicians are notorious for having very low ethics. Um, absolutely. Some of them are lawyers. <laughs> so, no, no I, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like ethics is like, well, it's only a problem if I get caught or as lawyers will tell you, it's only a problem if it's illegal. It doesn't matter if it's unethical. It's just a matter of if it's illegal or illegal. And ethics takes you so far beyond that, that really it's about, is it the right thing to do? Um, or is it the expedient thing to do? I also often draw a distinction between, in kind of thinking about um, self-discipline, I realized for myself, there was there's two different kinds of decisions. There's the decision to do the thing I don't want to do, and then also the decision to not do the thing I do want to do. And so it seems to take right. different energies to do that that we might excel at one of those and fail at the other of those. It's kind of like saying, well, I never tell a lie. Yeah, but you don't tell the whole truth. And that's a whole different problem. So like, so you can tell yourself, yeah, because I, or I have self-discipline because I do what I don't want to do. Yeah. But you have no ability to stop doing or to start doing what you don't want to do. Exactly. And that's exactly how you get in that downward spiral where it's like, I've made this poor decision. Well, Next time it comes along, well, I've already screwed up. I'm, you know, I'll fix it tomorrow, right? And it starts that downward spiral where all of a sudden you're making bigger and worse decisions. And ultimately it's going to get you in a very bad and dark place. Yeah. And it's, it, it, I think a lot of people do not perceive that as you go down that spiral, thinking you're not going very far down, when you suddenly realize how far down you are and it's too late, climbing Absolutely. out of that pit is really, really hard because it's so far up to go that it's easier yeah, to at the beginning front end um let's see so um how how do you um when with we were talking about your boss a little bit and how that relationship since that one really closely mimics what we have with patients um how if you i'm sure other people are kind of in the same position as you and hopefully by the time they're at that rank, they're probably pretty good at this, but maybe there's some that aren't. How do they each go about? Have you seen people in that position who are trying to get your boss's ear and they fail to do so and they don't recognize what they might be doing wrong? Um, or is everybody at that level pretty good at earning? Yes. Well? No, no. At, at the, not everyone is, is good. Um, e- even, even at the ranks higher than me, like, mm-hmm. because the army ultimately has objectives. So, uh, they have to promote <laughs> certain people just to fill quotas, right? So based on that alone, you know that there's going to be some sub-performers in there. Uh, but to, to, really to get to your point, uh, the way that I approach really everything about what I do comes from from college, right? Because I was a marketing major. So uh, being in marketing, I understood that literally Everything I do, and I don't use literally all that often, but literally everything I do is a reflection of me, right? That, that's a very simple yet bold statement, right? If I say something, that's a reflection of me. If I do something, that's a reflection of me, right? So uh, it's the exact same way in business. Everything you do, you may not you may, may not want to think it, but if you send out a tweet, right, and you're associated with a business, all of a sudden that is that business or that tweet is a reflection of your business, right? Whether you want it to be or not. Um, so what I've seen a lot of people do, they, they get, try to get the boss's ear. And uh, what they don't understand is that he is also a human being, right? So he's always perceiving, even when they're not standing right in front of him. He's listening to what they're saying. He's listening to how they say it, right? If you sound like an idiot, chances are you might actually be one, right? So... So it's important to to present yourself in a way that um, that, <laughs> I've got a I've got a visitor. I thought your sneaker come in. <laughs> it's important to present yourself in a way that that you want to be reflected. For a business, it's important to always be reflecting how you want that business to be reflected. So uh, the, the way that I I do it is, uh, and, and I've done it thankfully since I was a lieutenant, is I live my life and career above reproach. And I try to get other people to recognize that as well. That's, that's just something I say. But if, if you do something off duty, 
it's still a reflection of who you are on duty, mm -hmm. right? You can't be two different people. Yeah. The things that you do when you put on civilian clothes is a direct reflection of what you would do in the, in the uniform. Right. So, um, that, that's one thing that, that I've, and, and I would say it took, it took a couple months to build that trust relationship with my boss. Um, but once it was there, he saw that, that whether he, whether I was standing right in front of him in his office or he caught me on the way to the water fountain or whatever, regardless of what, when he saw me or what he saw me doing, it was always going to be consistent because the minute that you change and you, your true self, if that's even a thing, your true self comes out, right? Cause you're always you, if your true self comes out or if you just break the lie really is what yeah. it comes down to. All of a sudden that trust is immediately going to go to that lowest common denominator, which is that's who you really are. Okay. I gotcha. All of a sudden you're, you're not going to be trustworthy in the areas that I need you to be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a saying that when people tell you who they are, believe them, believe them. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Tell you who they are, believe them. Absolutely. Um, and, but I like that we uh, kind of got into the marketing aspect because I hadn't really thought about that much at all. And I'd forgotten that your degree was in marketing and that you did some of that. And it's true because, um, there's a really good um, marketing book. I can't remember who writes it now. Um, Al Trout and somebody else. Anyway, it's like the best marketing book. Um, but they talk about different things like um, basically you are your brand. So it's almost like, yeah. a, like what if you put your name on everything you did? That you just have to think of it. In fact, like everything you do has your stamp of your brand. And your brand is what you do. And if you, and if you think of it that way, it actually will start to rein in your behavior because you'll start thinking about the fact that every little thing I do, if I react wrong here, I ruin the brand. If I do the wrong thing, if I do, yeah. start thinking about the brand idea. And they had another concept I thought was kind of interesting, strange at first, but then I went, you know, I get it. Because they were talking about how they don't like it when people name their kid after them, like junior or the second. They said the reason why is that when they studied it, they found that um, the second almost never outdoes the first. And they believe that there's a reason why, mm. with a rare exception of Ken Griffey Jr., um, who did pretty good at catching his dad. <laughs> but they said generally what happens is yeah. you've got the senior, and then when the junior comes along, because you gave him the name of the dad's brand. So what does the junior have to do? He has to live up to the dad's brand. And often what it does is the timies don't live up to it. And they, they struggle and struggle. But I think about that like poor Dale Earnhardt Jr. You come up with the name Dale Earnhardt? Like... That's a lot. And he said, that's a lot to live up to. And they said, that's a lot to live up to. That's what happens is that you grow up feeling like yeah. you have to live up to this name you've been given. And that the better thing to do is just give a kid their own name and let them do what they want with it because then they're not confined by their, their own brand. brand. I thought, what an odd concept in a marketing book to be talking about this. But they were trying to express the importance of how important a name is and the label that comes with it. And you're right. You're, our, our name is our brand. And being true and consistent Absolutely. With that makes a big difference. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of implications there too. And, and I, I think discipline really ties into that because uh, then all of a sudden you as an individual, do you, do you want to be expressing that thing that's then going to reflect on your business? So if, if I'm worried about the 2020 election, right, am I going to make that tweet expressing my opinion that's directly going to reflect on my, uh, on my brand? Or am I going to have the discipline to say, you know what? I don't need to say anything because I know how I feel and I don't need to express myself because I don't want to lose half my business or half my customers. Right. So, I mean, there is some discipline to that as well. Just recognizing sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Yeah. Cause it, in a lot of different areas, politics being one of them, we could say it's a roughly 50, 50 split. So if you demonstrate that you are really slanted in one direction or the other, and now your brand is slanted in that direction. You just lost half your potential customers. Just like yeah. that. I, I can't even tell you how many times I saw it on, on like Facebook. Like I don't even go on Facebook that much, but just different brands going under because they made a statement, right? Mm -hmm. Do you need to make a statement? That's, that's up to you. That's up to you to decide. Yeah. If that's your business, then absolutely. If that's not your business, why are you branching outside to that point where then you're going to put yourself in a position that you're going to, you're going to lose half your customers. So to me, that takes a lot of discipline because we, I, I think we as a society now want to express our opinions because everyone has one, right? Uh, and well, honestly, right. That, 
<laughs> yeah, right. And then honestly, that's something that, that I used to t- talk to my students about uh, when I was an instructor was, uh, but it's talking specifically about logistics, you should have an opinion about everything, literally everything. And you should be willing to speak your opinion. But when it comes to being divisive and potentially losing customers, I think it's important to, to recognize and be self-aware enough that not everyone shares your opinion. So, and I think a lot of it comes down to being humble enough to say, this is my opinion and I respect you for your opinion. And I, I want to know your opinion as well. That way it may help me adjust mine. Right. And if, if there's no humbleness there and there's no uh, ability to recognize other people, then automatically your brand has just been tainted. Right. And I, and you are going to lose half your customers. Yeah. I, I, people ask me all the time because they'll say, well, where can we find you? Are you on Facebook? I, I don't, I have a thing on Facebook. I, people who follow me will notice I hardly ever comment on anything ever. Um, and the biggest reason why is exactly that reason that as vice president of the Gonsley Clinical Studies Society, whatever I say now reflects back on them. Mm-hmm. Um, now I teach at life. Whatever I say now reflects back on them. That I'm not, I'm no longer just my own brand, but I'm actually a brand other, other, under other brands. Yeah. And I owe it to those brands to stay mostly neutral on things I do speak up about. If it's anything, it's going to be on things related to what I do. And yes, people can have a differing opinion. But one of the things I've learned is I'm going to come back at you with science. And if you're not okay with that, then why are we having this conversation? Yeah, right. Because, because, I'm, because that's not, it's not really just about our opinions. And it seems like eventually a lot of those social media platforms turn into a battle of opinions, which then becomes a battle of wills. And yeah. whoever can make the most inflammatory statement wins instead of yeah. who has any idea what they're actually talking about. Exactly. So, no, and, and it's and it's worse when it's a it's when it's opinion masquerading as science. Yeah. That 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 tends to be one yeah, another area where it's well, my data tells me this. Well, where did your data come from? From the back of my head. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm sitting on it. I'm, I'm sitting on it, yeah. So. Uh, they, uh, well, I can imagine in the military. When you're trying to make decisions about military stuff, you're looking at data that reflects what actually happened previously. And you don't have people, you don't have privates coming up to you going, well, I think it's like this. <laughs> and I know yeah, it's anything, but this is what I think it is. You're exactly right. And th- there is no, well, no, I take that back. I was going to say there is no thought in our decision-making process, but that's false. So the, the, the opinion and the thought process goes before we actually even start the decision-making process, right? So everyone has a chance to say, well, here's how I think we should approach it. And we call that the Army Design Methodology. So we're essentially taking different pieces of, of different staff sections. So I'm, I'm a logistics officer. You would have someone who deals with uh, long-range artillery or maybe a, an infantryman, maybe an aviator. And everyone's going to put their own perspective and their opinion in how we should approach it, right? And we're going we're gonna to build this little model. And then from there, we're immediately going to throw it away. <laughs> not, not entirely. <laughs> we're going to we're going to put it aside, I should say. And then we're going to start by analyzing data. Uh, and and there, there's a uh, Marina, we're talking about this uh, not too long ago. There, there's a vast difference between information and intelligence. Right. So everyone wants to dog on military intelligence. Oh, they don't seem that intelligent. To me. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's an right. So. Uh, <laughs> So intelligence is is not what what we would commonly think of. Hey, I'm really smart. I'm intelligent. Right? Information by itself is just data. Right? I can't do a whole lot of of anything with just this one piece of information. But if I have this piece of information and I can tie it to this piece of information and put these pieces of information together, all of a sudden I'm starting to see a a, a picture of how the enemy is going to approach the situation and how we should counteract that. That becomes intelligence when you start putting information together, and I think oh, that's that's a lot of what uh, of of what people who don't understand that concept that's that's a thinking trap, right? I've got this piece of information, therefore this is truth. This is my gospel, and this is everything that I'm going to build my plan off of. That's just one little nugget of information. You haven't yet begun to look at what other pieces of information are out there, so you can put it together, put that puzzle together and build a picture so I can understand and have an intelligent perspective of the situation. Yeah. And that's actually a big part of what I try to teach in my classes to the students, because in Gonstead, we've got visualization, instrumentation, static palpation, motion palpation, x-rays, 
And each of them give us data, but only when we put it together do we get the intelligence to know what to do. And when other people choose not to take any of that data and to simply go, I think you have this problem and start work, whacking away at it, that's not really intelligence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or even worse, if you, if you deliberately leave out a piece of data, so that way you can, you can gear it towards a certain agenda or try, try to lead someone to a certain diagnosis because here's the, the pieces of information that I've seen, but I'm neglecting this other piece of information that's going to lead me down a different direction. If, if I'm deliberately misleading you with that disinformation, I, that, that alone is dangerous, but then also the misinformation. So I didn't even realize that this data piece was out here. And now I'm, I'm advising you on these smaller pieces of information that I know and understand, not recognizing that there's another piece out there that could really either help you or it's going to make the situation a whole lot worse. Yeah. And as doctors, we have to fight against confirmation bias where we've already mm -hmm. decided what it is. We want to, do you have to fight that as well? Where you've done something a million times, you know what should happen or usually happens. And you have to convince yourself constantly, there. <laughs> Con constantly right? So uh, I, I was talking about the, the decision making. So it's called the military decision making process. MDMP is what we call it. Uh, I, I can talk about it because we we just did it this whole week. We've we've spent planning and operating, uh, or not operating, planning an operation for. Uh, a, uh, a response in the event of a national emergency, our unit would be the one to go out and, and respond to that as a, uh, a military augmentee to the civil authorities in that area uh, to help respond to a, a crisis. Uh, so we've been going through doing the, this decision-making process. And every time you get into it, you're always going to find that individual who doesn't want to do any thinking, right? Who doesn't want to look at the individual, doesn't want to read, that's that's the number one error, yeah. right? Anytime that there's an order published and nobody reads it, all of a sudden you're starting from nothing, right? So so <laughs> hit the cheat button, read, right? Mm -hmm. Figure out what you what it is you're supposed to be doing, and then take those individual pieces of information and, and actually come up with some sort of of understanding of the situation before you just if if your conclusion is the same as it was before you did anything else, <laughs> then you haven't really done anything, right? You've you've literally made no progress. Mm -hmm. It should change somehow. There's there's got to be there's got to be a way that that when you actually look at the information, your initial impression is different than your final conclusion. Yeah, it's weird. There's some kind of an emotional gratification, people get from patting themselves on the back and going, yep, that's what I thought it was. That's what I thought. <laughs> I knew it the whole time. And I don't know what that is because I actually hate it when it's what I thought it was. I know. <laughs> I want it to be something totally different. Exactly. Exactly. So I, th so I think that's kind of weird, but I know that there's that confirmation bias and just the way our brains work and our perceptions that we're, we're totally unaware of our, our, um, our biases or, um, John Maxwell he did it once did a lesson on the blind spot. And he said, there's a reason they call it the blind spot. It's because you can't see it. Otherwise you would have noticed it and fixed it. <laughs> you, you would have fixed it. Yeah. yeah. It's like when you have a blind spot, you don't know it. And so you don't see what's in it that you don't see. And so there has to be a very, I think this is where self-discipline ties in. There has to be a very cognitive effort or acknowledgement that I need to do this. And then a disciplined effort to do it where I go hunting for what I don't see. Um, or as, um, as some people will ask the question, like in business meetings and stuff, they'll ask the question, what am I not seeing? Because you can lay out, I can lay out, here's what I see, here's the view I have, here's my perspective, here's the data that backs it up. And then when I'm all done and clean, what am I not seeing? Uh, and that's kind of the, um, a lot of times that's the role I try to play with students when they have, when they're new in practice and they have a case that they're having trouble with, is I want them to lay out, what's the view you have? What do you see of this whole case? And then the question is, what are you not seeing? Let me see if I can help you find what might be in your blind spot. Um, because it might even yeah, be- Yeah, no, absolutely. Found it. Yeah? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think the, the converse is just as important for a leader. If, if I'm the leader and I'm leading an organization, I need to be humble enough that I can go to my subordinates and say, what am I missing? Mm -hmm. Right? You guys are the ones seeing it every day. What, what, are, what am I not seeing? I think a lot of times we as a leader think, well, I'm- I'm the leader. I need to tell them what they're missing. Uh, I saw, I, I did it a lot of, uh, with my students, right? I would say, um, it, I could have been that, that stubborn instructor and just been like, 
nope, I'm in charge. Everything I do is correct. Therefore, I'm missing nothing. Therefore, if you don't know something, you're wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. But no, I I should be I should be humble enough to say, this is this is what we just went through. What doesn't make sense? How how can we how can we fix the errors or fix the gaps in information to make sure that that we're all on the same page? Uh, so, so I I think yeah, you're exactly right that we we as leaders should be willing to to say how can I help you? But the the, the converse is just as real. I, as a leader, need to be saying, how can how can you help me, <laughs> right? Guy, how can you help me uh, fix the situation? Because for a private organization, at least, if if you as a leader are missing something and you don't ask that question, there's a very good likelihood that your business will just collapse. Like, you, you, you will miss something. Whereas if you're asking your employees and treating them like people and, and, and giving them certain responsibilities, they, they could help you just as much as you can help them. Yeah. Um, with the position I now have with having students, um, I see this more that way because the things that are hidden in your blind spot can, can take down your business. And because it's in your blind spot, you don't even see it coming. It just is on you immediately. And you don't see it till it's already blown up. Well, in this position with teaching, I've got these students and the a lot of the classes are new to me and I want things to be better. I want things to be always progressing. So we do the thing of, um, we want the student feedback, like tell us what you're thinking about the class, rate the stuff. And of course, nobody ever wants to do it. And right. they're paranoid that whatever I say can and will be used against me in a court of law. It's, it's coming against me. Yeah, right. I'm not really eager to do it. Well, the school, I just found this out. I'm actually surprised by this. The school actually processes all of those are processed by a third party off campus. And nobody on campus even knows who wrote what. And the students are still like, yeah, I don't really believe it. Not really sure that's true. <laughs> so trying to get that kind of trust yeah. tells me that somewhere along the line, somebody must have been betrayed by somebody somehow, either in their life or some way, where that trust has been lost for a lot of students. And it's been really hard to get it back. And, and yet I find myself in a position where I really do value their opinions. I want to know. Don't just tell me the good things you think I want to hear. But if there's something that's not good, tell me because I want to fix it. But, I can only, but it may be something I never deal with. So I don't know how broken it is until you tell me and then I can go fix it. Yeah, And so it's that information, when you start getting it, I think about um, like you go to a hotel and they tell you and they want you to their honest opinion. Well, if the service was terrible or if the room was full of cockroaches, tell them because the person who's on top probably doesn't know that because they've never stayed in that room. How would they know? So it's getting that kind of idea. And yeah. I think it's super valuable information. And you're right. Most, most doctors, especially, are not about to ask their patients what they thought of the office. And yet they really probably should because they've you'll stuff through some garbage, but you'll probably get some gems that could really turn things around or make things way better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something you said was, was, uh, was profound. And I think that there's two different perspectives in, in that whole critique situation. The, the onus is on the person critiquing to be respectful, right? I understand these are your flaws and these are your errors and here's how we can overcome them. Mm -hmm. If I say, your hotel room is just straight garbage and I'm never coming back. Does that, that doesn't help me. But if you, like you said, if you point out, Hey, there were cockroaches in the corner. Uh, the bathtub smelled like, <laughs> like throw up. I, I don't know. Like if you can actually specify that it's fantastic. Now I know to go in that room, clean the bathtub and clean the corners out of the cup. Right. So the next person can have a good, good experience for me as the individual being critiqued. I need to have thick enough skin to understand that, that, I mean, while it is a reflection on me, I need to understand that that I need to change myself, not put up that that barrier of saying, no, I'm perfect. There's no way that I missed that corner full of cockroaches or that bathtub that stunk, right? I, It, it really is a two-way conversation anytime there's, there's some sort of critique like that. Uh, and, and I think anytime you have one side who's skewed, it's it's gonna screw up the entire situation because I I've had students who reflected on me and like and just gave really poor critique and it's like well I mean that doesn't really help me like you're just insulting me at this point <laughs> <laughs> which which is fine you, you can insult me that that's fine but it doesn't help me or the next person who's going to be in your situation uh, whereas if that person actually gave me a good critique and I was like yeah whatever I'm not gonna I'm not gonna believe that because I was the one leading. Therefore, I was the one who was right and you were just jealous. Right? That doesn't help anyone either. Well, I find that when people are critical, 
if they tell you something like there was cockroaches in the room or there's a dead body in the tub, they don't make all those kind of details if they're just trying to be mean. But when yeah. somebody tells you your room is just garbage and I'm never coming back, then they're just trying to be mean. So, yeah, then exactly. so why are they trying to be mean? What happened that made them decide that they just wanted to be mean? Or maybe they're just a mean person. But mean people give those generalized, not very helpful, it was awful, you guys are smelly and I hate you. Um, but when people yeah. specifically tell you the, the, the cold water faucet in the bathroom didn't work and the tub is full of ammonia and the bed <laughs> is marble, then those kind of details, whether they're doing it right or not, they're at least making an attempt to zero you in on where the problem is and what needs to be fixed. And so same thing with our office. If they just, I think if they don't like your personality, then they're probably more inclined to just be like, I didn't like it. You were awful, whatever. Um, yeah. And they can give you specific things uh, or they may not have liked the information you gave them because they wanted you to tell them one thing and when you told them the truth, they didn't like it. So they might do that kind of thing. But when they can specifically say there was a problem with this specific thing or this specific thing, then you can figure out, you know exactly what you need to fix and you can start improving it. Yeah. And, and for a business, I think that the best way to overcome that is to ask specific questions, right? right? So rather than asking a broad, broad question, like, what do you like about the place? <laughs> right. Uh, whereas if you, if you say, did you really like the, the bathtub? <laughs> and you say, no. And then why not? It was, there was a dead body. there, So that, that was, that would be helpful. Right. Whereas if I say, what'd you like about the place? Well, there was not a dead body in the in the bathroom. Sorry, we've gotten really dark and macabre in, in this in this podcast. I'll I'll, uh, I'll clean it up. I'm sorry. Well, people are going to wonder what kind of hotels we stay in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, because I actually kind of like where we've kind of gone with all this to get into this area of marketing and and getting positive feedback, um, and then realizing that um, even how you respond to a complaint is marketing. Yeah, it's still, absolutely. It's going to set their opinion of what kind of place you are. And even if they come to the conclusion that, well, I didn't like it, I'm not coming back. But I think maybe you're a good person. You kind of got a little bit of a win there. So it's yeah, it, it's at least going to preserve that brand name in their mind. And, and you're right. People don't think that about that. They don't have the discipline to think about it. That 24-7, I am me and I am my brand. Yeah. And and, and what you just said, when I respond to a review, if, if someone like on um let's say Google, like there, um, someone put a review about me and my, my business and they just completely dogged me. If I get into a, an argument with them, uh, first of all, I'm not going to win that, that person back. I, I understand that, right? Cause I'm now I'm arguing with them, but now everyone else who's coming to look at the reviews is seeing that I'm combative, mm -hmm. that I, that I don't respect them as a person that I'm, I'm, I'm just not being, uh, willing to accept any sort of critique. Whereas if I go on there and, and very politely say, you know what, I'm really sorry. Let me know if there's any way that I can make it up to you. How, how can I help fix your your problem? To me, as a as a consumer, I'm going to look at that and say, oh wow, there. If if I go there and they and there's something that that is not the way that I want it, they're going to do what they can to make it right. And that's that's the person I want to do business with. So you're exactly right. Even that is part of marketing uh, because there's someone else looking at it. And while I don't really care about about getting that one person back, I care more about how other people are perceiving my reaction to that review. Yeah, and I think the other side of that too is that I'm not doing the right thing or doing anything good for the for the positive review. Like when if students email me and they've got a problem or they want to see this or they want to see that or whatever they're doing, I'm happy to help them out. But I'm not doing it because I want a good review so I can go to my boss right. and be like, look, I got a good review because I'm so helpful. Um, that's not the reason why. I'm doing it because that's just who I am. And if they give me a great yeah. review, great that they gave me a great review. Um, and I don't, t I don't take, I don't take the criticism personally, but I don't take the compliments personally either. That I have yeah. to compare that way. That neither they're probably both a little out of proportion. So I'm probably not as good as some people say I am, and probably not as bad as others say that I am. Probably somewhere in the middle. Um, and instead, it's those. If, if they say that something was positive because I did something to help them, that helps me to know that that was a good thing, and I should take that opportunity anytime it arises. Yeah, I I think it's it's important to be very mechanical about that, not emotional about reviews. Is understanding okay? There's obviously a problem with my process. How can I fix that? Whereas if I get emotional, either really really high, oh wow, everyone loved me, or oh God, nobody liked me, right? If if I'm on that spectrum of of swinging back and forth emotionally, then I can't be mechanical about how I'm going to fix the process to make sure that 
that I don't care if you like me or hate me. Did we accomplish the mission? Did we get, did you get what you needed from me? Cause that's ultimately what I care about. Yeah. That's probably the best thing that we inherited is that we don't, we're not very emotional people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we could just plow right through the middle and be like, whatever. <laughs> don't care that much. Yeah. No. So, well, thank you for joining me. I very much appreciate it. That was a great conversation. I haven't had any like that to go in that direction, but those are things I do think about. I definitely recognize from working. And um, I even think about some of the conversations we had early on when you were still in marketing, just thinking about these concepts of marketing. It really got me thinking about marketing, reading books on marketing, trying to understand, trying to send, understand more about how people think and what they do. And I think that you're kind of in the, uh, the greatest laboratory of all being in the military um, if you're going to study people. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Laboratory. I like it. Yeah. Very accurate. You're the military laboratory. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure to be here. It was good talking to you, David. I want to thank Chris once again for joining us today. As you can probably tell, he's done very well in his military career, beginning with boot camp and OCS and continuing to his current duty station where he was handpicked. If you will follow his advice, you will certainly see it return back to you many times over. And I want to thank you as well for joining us this week. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.